Good morning, Servant Church. You thought I was raptured, didn't you? But I'm still here. Uh, I just wanted to say, uh, first and foremost, this is very cheeky of me, but I want to say a very happy birthday to my gorgeous wife, Sarah. And this is me taking a pastoral perk. I admit that. Uh, but also, I want to say happy Pentecost. It's amazing to think about that 2,000 years ago, uh, the Holy Spirit, 2020 years ago, something like that, the Holy Spirit pour, was poured out upon God's people. And because of that, we have this great hope that we don't just uh, read about God with us and Jesus, but the Spirit of Christ dwells in those who believe. And what a, what a glorious thing. And may He fill us with His power afresh. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles again, continuing our series through 2 Chronicles. We're going to look at two chapters, verses 30, or chapter 31 and 32 today. And because it is two chapters, for the sake of time, I just want to pray and then, and then kind of give you an introduction and then we'll dive right into it. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your love for us is perfect, it's complete, it's everlasting. And Lord, it's a love that doesn't leave us alone. And we pray, Father, that as we look at your word afresh today, as we think about who you are, uh, we think about the, the, the work you did in Hezekiah and your people during his day. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would teach us what we need to know. Help us, Lord, to desire the same kind of revival in our hearts and in our midst, Lord, that they experience in this day. And Father, we pray, Father, that we would not... Um, Lord, we would not think that that's just someday in the future, but that we'd be open to what you can even do in our, our, our lives and our hearts this morning. So, Father, meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone says in their living rooms, amen. All right. So, if you remember uh, from a couple chapters ago, we've been looking at uh, the King Hezekiah. In fact, chapters 29 to 32, these are, this is all really one section where the author of Chronicles is wanting to encourage those people that have come back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. He wants to encourage them that in the, even in the darkest of times, God is able to do this work of revival. He's able to restore and revive his people. And what was great about the beginning is that here at a time when Hezekiah knew there was this threat from the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who we'll talk about today, when he knew there was that threat, his biggest priority was not let's build up the military. His biggest priority was let's get our hearts right with God. That was a work of God in the heart of Hezekiah. It spread throughout Judah and as we'll see today, even throughout Israel. And it, the kind of peak of that was what we saw last week was the celebration of Passover, kind of restoring Passover, inviting people together and seeing God's people unified around uh, the redemption that they have uh, from their God. And so what we're going to talk about today is about how revival uh, means resistance. We, we've talked about how revival means a refocusing on God. We've talked about how revival means a reunifying of His people. But revival also means resistance. It's not as if when God revives our hearts, then everything's sorted. There's no more conflict. No, we still experience conflict. In fact, the conflicts that God's people experience in some ways increase. And there's three fronts, there's three areas where God's people do experience conflict specifically. Uh, the first one is the world. 
Uh, what we mean by that is the world system. Here, here's what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus isn't saying that everybody who's not a Christian hates everyone who is a Christian. That's not the point. The point is there's something about how we live our lives as Jesus follower that's never going to fit in this world. And that brings a conflict. Another front we have conflict on as God's people is, is from the devil, from Satan and his angels. The scripture tells us in James 4, 7 that we should submit ourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. There's a hope there that we're going to talk more about in a minute. But there's also a reality that we have a conflict. We have an enemy who knows his time is short, uh, who wants to see us deceived and pulled away from God. But lastly, and maybe in some ways uh, the most important, we have a conflict with our own selves, our own sinful natures, what the Bible calls our flesh. The scripture says in, in Galatians chapter 5, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. There's conflict to keep you from doing the things that you want. And so what we're going to see today as we look at how Hezekiah deals with the resistance that he experiences, how he's moving God's uh, people forward in the midst of this revival. We're going to learn some lessons about what it means for us to resist, what it means for us to uh, be those who, as, as those who desire revived hearts, handle the resistance that we will experience. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 31, and we'll go from there. It says, when all this was finished, that is the Passover celebration, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the division of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and the Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to serve and to give thanks, and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. The king also appointed a portion of his, that is his own possession, for the burnt offerings, for the morning and evening offerings, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the set priests, set feasts, as it is written in the law of God. So what we see here is after the Passover is uh, done, after that celebration is finished, and they've celebrated the Passover and then had an extra seven days of celebration, as we saw last week, when that's done, what they do is they don't only continue to clean out the idols that have been built up and the false places of worship that have been up, built up in Judah, but, but also they, that, that spreads over into the ten tribes of Israel. And they begin to tear down those idols and destroy those idols. In other words, there was, in, as a response to the celebration, there was an intentional ridding the land of idols. They were getting rid of everything. And there's this really important phrase that we see at the end of verse 3 of why they did this or what dictated how they did this was they did all these things. They set up all the, 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 the Levi, Levitical priests to, to reestablish worship. They did this as is written in the law. 
Now, now what's going on here is that they are returning to a worshiping God exclusively. Remember one of the things that was going on in Israel, in the 10 tribes of Israel was, they said they worshiped Yahweh, but instead they worshiped a golden calf. And they also, under certain kings, worshiped all kinds of other idols. And that even started to happen uh, in, in, in the days of the father of King Hezekiah, when his father reigned, that they were worshiping all these other gods. But as God's done this work in Hezekiah, and that work has spread throughout Judah and now Israel, they're coming back to establishing this worship of God, this exclusive exclusive worship of God or seeing God as worthy exclusively of worship. Now with this comes uh, what we see in verse 4. It says, Now moreover Hezekiah commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of God. So what you have here is even though they've kind of, they, they have cleaned out all the idols, there's still, um, there was still literally a lack of funding for the priests and the Levites to do the work that God called them to do. So Hezekiah commands the people, he says, listen, we need to kind of put up and shut up. We need to actually kind of invest in what God wants for his people, invest in the temple worship. In other words, he's calling for a new, renewed support financially. Now, you might think, oh, here it goes. John's going to start talking about money. We don't want to hear this. Well, I'm not really going to talk about money except to say this. I want you to notice a couple things. From verse 3, it says the king appointed a portion of his own possessions. In other words, he didn't say, hey, come give. He said, look, I'm giving, I'm investing in God's kingdom. I'm calling you to invest in God's kingdom. But also what we see here, this is a principle we see throughout Scripture. We see that often the last thing that we're willing to surrender to God is, is our money, is to let Him have control. Now, this is not about the fact that a servant's church needs money. There's always a need for money. Ministry always is underfunded in almost every church. In fact, every church I've ever heard of. But it's not about that need. But it is about us saying, God, we want to reestablish the right worship of you. And that includes our pocketbook. In fact, look at the way these guys responded in verse 5. It says, As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine and oil and honey and all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelt in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of the oxen and the sheep, and the tithe of the holy things which were consecrated to the Lord their God. They laid these things in heaps. Now, don't picture piles of dead animals. They could probably they probably took the animals, exchanged them for cash, which the, the, the Old Testament law allowed, or the, 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 the animals themselves were in the area where they are able to be kept. But everything else is piled up, right? It says in verse 7, In the third month they began laying them in heaps, and they finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and His people. And then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. So he's not questioning in a negative sense. He's kind of going, whoa, where did all this stuff come from, right? Verse 10, and Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people, and what is left in this is this great abundance. Now, this is amazing because here Hezekiah is calling for this, setting an example of what it looks like, and then the people respond in radical generosity. 
And then in verse 11 through, uh, uh, basically 11 through 19, uh, here's what we see happen. Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. And then from basically verse 12 all the way down to, to verse 19, it's describing how that money was kept in these rooms and distributed uh, among the Levitical families who did the work of maintaining the temple. Now, we're not going to get into all the different people. I'm not going to list names. That's always a painful experience when I read the names. We're not going to do that. But I want you to recognize that there was an organized distribution of this. All this is about God uh, working through Hezekiah to reestablish the right worship of him. Now, look at verse. I want you to drop down to verse 18 and see what it says about these Levitical families. And if you've been with us, you'll know this is significant. It says, and to all who were written in the genealogies, that's all the uh, Levites, their little ones and their wives, their sons and their daughters, the whole company of them, listen, here's the reason, for in their faithfulness they sanctified themselves in holiness. Now, now, now remember, we've seen it during Hezekiah's revival that sometimes it was the priests and the Levites that were kind of lagging behind the rest of the people to actually set themselves apart and say, God, we want to serve you. But that's happening here. We're seeing that this influence has not just been them kind of being willing to cooperate with the things that Hezekiah was was ordering, but them submitting themselves to God. It's as if they're saying, God, we want to commit our service to you just the way you want it. We're committed to you. And then if you drop down to verse 20, here's what we see. Then Hezekiah did all, uh, did all, Thus, I'm sorry, Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, so he prospered. And here we see again a great picture of Hezekiah, uh, who is experiencing this great revival in his own heart. And you can see his attitude is, God, I want to commit to you to seek you as you are. So in other words, Hezekiah and Levites, they're committed authentically to God. So this is what we talk about when we're talking about establishing the worship of God. And this really is the first step in our resistance. Because we sometimes we think resistance is, is having to fight against something that's coming against us. But obviously, often, resistance is just what we feel when we begin to pursue what God has for us. We begin to pursue wanting to worship Him as He is worthy. Especially, listen, specifically when we say, no, God is not just what I choose to do with my life or how I choose to worship. God is worthy of all worship exclusively. That's a message, guys, listen, that the world pushes back against. One of the things that makes it difficult for us as Jesus followers um, in the world is that we don't say, hey, let us just have the freedom to worship our God in our private way, though we do obviously desire that as well, but that we would actually claim that our God is the only God, that Jesus is is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's that exclusivity That rubs people the wrong way. Now, the truth is, we can say it in the wrong way as well, can't we? We can be arrogant or cocky or act as if we're somehow better because we know the true living God. We're we're not. We're just been graced by God that he's wanted to reveal himself to us. But the truth is that, that this is what people push back against, this exclusive worship of God. When we say this is what, how it has to be established, 
people go, I don't like it. But don't you know, this is what people need to see. If, if, if you're tuning in, at just kind of checking out uh, church or checking out Jesus or Christianity, uh, you're kind of in the, in the first steps of this. I want you to know not only are we proclaiming to you that Jesus is the one that we worship, that our God who's been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our three-in-one God, that He is worthy of exclusive worship, but I would think you would agree that that's really what you're looking for. I mean, if you're just looking for something that works for you, Christianity is not going to be it. Because when we try to just add Jesus to our life so that our life is better in the way we want it to be, it's really not worship. It's only when we say, Jesus, you are first. You are king. You are worthy of an exclusive kind of relationship. This is why Jesus says heavy things like in Luke chapter 14, it won't be on your screen, but you can look it up later. In Luke chapter 14, when Jesus says, if you don't hate your mother, brother, sister, wife, children, you're not worthy to follow me. And we go, whoa, that's heavy. How does that work? God wants us, Jesus wants us to hate people. Obviously not, because he told us to love our enemies. So he wouldn't tell us to love our enemies and hate our families if it was really hate. No, the idea is that our our Commitment to Him, our worship of Him should be so exclusive that all other relationships pale in comparison. That doesn't mean that we treat other people badly in some way so we can somehow prove that that we really love Jesus. It means that our commitment to Jesus is first and foremost. We, We are exclusively committed to Him. This is, what we, this is what it means to be revived in our hearts, and this is what the world needs to see. The scripture says this, Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, to people who were suffering greatly because they were worshiping Jesus exclusively. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is distinctly set apart. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, this exclusive commitment to God, this exclusive worship of Jesus is why we have hope. We believe that He alone has saved us and He alone is worthy to be watched after. This is why Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. Don't be defensive. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, Lord, we want to worship you exclusively. We want to serve you in a way that you're worthy And we believe as we do that, even if people don't like us, even if people resist that, it's going to be the best witness we can have. Now, we get to chapter 32, and this is when we begin to see the resistance that comes uh, from, from the enemies of God. And we need to understand how this works, because here we see Sennacherib, the uh, king of uh, the Assyrians, the leader of the Assyrians, is coming against Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 32 After these things, after these deeds of faithfulness, that is the faithfulness of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. And he encamped encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. 
Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself. This is Hezekiah strengthened himself. He built up all the wall that was broken. He raised up to the towers and built another wall outside. He also repaired the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. So here's what's happening. Sennacherib comes and he basically seeks to put Jerusalem on the defensive. He goes around all the cities outside of Jerusalem. He, he kind of shows, he makes a visible showing of his presence. What he's trying to do is he's trying to intimidate Hezekiah and the people of Judah. But actually what happens is in Sennacherib trying to put Jerusalem on the defensive, what happens is this actually motivates Hezekiah and Judah to make real serious preparations. So in other words, what Sennacherib means for evil, God's using for good to prepare them to get stronger. And I love what happens in verse 6. It says, Then Hezekiah set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitudes that is uh, with him, for they uh, are more than us, uh, I'm sorry, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I love this. Sennacherib wants to put all of Jerusalem on the defensive, all of the people of God on the defensive. And what does it do? It encourages Hezekiah and Judah to say, we're going to be strong in the Lord. We're going to trust the Lord. Now, what do we see in verse 9? Actually, verses 9 to 19. We see Sennacherib expertly using blasphemy to try to intimidate God's people. And this is important for us to pay attention to. Verse 9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all the forces with him laid siege against Lachish, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who were in, uh, in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away God's high places and his altars and, and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Do, do you see what he's doing here? What he's doing here is he's trying to, uh, Sennacherib is trying to get um, God's people to not trust God's chosen leader. Now, we see this happening again if you drop down quickly to verse 13 where it says, Therefore, the Sennacherib says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, he says. Now, now this, is, this is important to understand because this is what our enemy does with us. He says, you can't trust your leader. Who's our leader? It ain't me. It's Jesus. The enemy tells us, look, you can't really trust the leader. Oh, Jesus was a nice guy or he was a good teacher or, okay, maybe he died for your sins, but the rest is up to you. How do you even follow Jesus now? He's not even here anymore. Come on. 
And he lies to us and tries to undermine our confidence in Jesus, our confidence in God's chosen leader. Now, what happens? Verse 13. Sennacherib goes on to say, Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all, all the peoples in other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, you see what's going on here? He's, he's, he's purposely trying to say, I'm stronger than your God. It says in verse 16, furthermore, I'm sorry, verse, uh, uh, where am I? Uh, verse uh, 15, he says, now therefore, uh, do not let Hezekiah deceive you and do not believe him, nor for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord God and his servant Hezekiah. See, this is what Sennacherib's doing is trying to say, you can't trust Hezekiah's leadership and you can't trust Hezekiah's God because he's offended Hezekiah's God. Now, this is, again, what the enemy tries to do with us. What the enemy tries to do with us is say, you know what? Just look around you. Is God winning? Is your God somehow in charge? Really? No, no, no. Your God isn't in charge. Look at those who follow your God. Are they more moral than those who don't? No, no, no. We're more moral than they are. And he tries to show himself as stronger or better than our God. Now, he does it in very subtle ways, but he still does it. What Sennacherib is doing with Judah and with Hezekiah, our enemy tries to do with us. Look at verse 17. Sennacherib also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, as the gods of, of the nations are of of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand. So the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out. This is the, the, the servants of Sennacherib. They called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the peoples of the other earth, the works of men's hand. Now, I love the, that little kind of phrase that uh, is there from the author of Chronicles. It, it, you can almost kind of, um, you can feel his unbelief, his disbelief. I, how, how stupid is this that they would compare our God with the work of men's hands. But you got to think about the people that were first in the situation and how intimidating it might have been. Now, the, the sort of, the political language that was spoken in this time was Aramaic. So when a king from one nation would speak to another, a king of another nation, they would speak to one another in Aramaic. Hebrew, of course, was the language of, uh, of the Hebrew people. And so what's happening here, Sennacherib is using common language to gain influence, to manipulate God's people. And this is often what happens with us. Often we're attracted to things that seem like us, that, that kind of feel familiar to us. And so we'll listen to those voices, but sometimes those voices are the very ones that are, are meant to deceive us and try to take us away from God. 
Now, again, I'm not trying to build up any sort of paranoia, but I am trying to get us to recognize the, the parallels here between the way Sennacherib was bringing deception to Judah and the way our enemy brings deception to us. So what happens? What happens when here finally Hezekiah and Judah, Israel, remember the ten nations of Israel have already fallen to Sennacherib. The ten tribes, I should say. So now you have Judah and Benjamin left and those kind of remnant were from Judah. Here they are wanting to return to the true God to reestablish real worship. And Sennacherib shows up and thinks, this is it. I'm going to destroy these guys as well. What do they do? Because the truth was uh, that, that their armies, the armies of the Assyrians, were much more powerful than the armies that Judah had. In fact, in a sense, they've kind of all had to come into Jerusalem and, and, and hide there. So what are they going to do? How are they going to deal with the enemies of God? Verse 20. Now, because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. So what do they do? They do what we should all do when we are backed into a corner, what we should all do before we're backed into a corner. They prayed. You see, here, here's a situation where Hezekiah and Judah, God's people, have experienced a real revival. They want to rid themselves of idols. They want to worship God exclusively. But then as the enemies come, there's another reason to resist. And how do they resist? They ask God to intervene. See, this is important because the asking, our asking of God, our seeking God in prayer it expresses something that's super important, something that God wants us to hold fast to, and that is our complete and utter dependence upon Him. Why does God want us to pray about so many things? God, you already know what we need. Do you ever feel that way? Are you ever tempted to say, God, you, you just, just do what you need to do. Whatever you're going to do is best, so just kind of leave it there. And we, this is kind of sometimes what our prayer ends up becoming. But that's not praying to the living God. That's praying to fate. Our God, who's alive, who's sovereign, wants us to experience our utter dependence upon Him because He is utterly dependable. Look at verse 21. They cry out to God, and the answer comes like right away, it says, or it seems to, to chronicle or wants us to see this. Verse 21, Then the Lord sent an angel, one angel, who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. And so Sennacherib returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with, with the sword there. Now, we, we know from other historical sources that uh, Sennacherib uh, did die this way, but he died 20 years later. And here's what's also interesting. Uh, I'm trying to remember where it is. I, I think it might have been in, uh, I know it was in, a history museum in Chicago, but I think it might have spent some time uh, in uh, the Natural History uh, Museum in London. But there is, we do have a clay tablet that it talks about Assyrians' history. And it mentions Sennacherib and even his conquest of Judah. But here's what's interesting. He t in, this, in this clay tablet, he talks about how he conquers the cities of Jerusalem and he surrounded Jerusalem and then he went home. So it doesn't say that he lost. It just says he surrounded and then he went home. Now, kings in those days never recorded defeats. But he doesn't record a victory over Jerusalem. Why? Because he didn't have victory over Jerusalem. And we do know that 20 years after that time, he was killed by some of his own relatives. Now, here's what's amazing about this. 
They're, they are, here they are, they're backed up by God's enemy. And how do they defeat God's enemy? Prayer. They, they, they express this utter dependence on God, and what happens? God brings an answer that shows His complete sufficiency, that He can do exactly what He wants to do. If you look up later on, Isaiah chapter 37, verses 6, 36 and 37, you can look it up later on. What you'll read is this, that when God sent an angel, that one angel wiped out 185,000 professional soldiers. One angel. I, I, I sometimes, I, I, this is just my imagination. I'm, this, is, this is not thus says the Lord, but I kind of imagine God just picking some angel. Hey, Herbert, you, you haven't done anything in a while. Why don't you go down there and wipe these guys out? Some nerdy angel. Because God can send his weakest angel to wipe out anybody. God can, with a word, destroy all of our enemies. But he lets those things come against us. Why? So we learn our utter dependence upon him. And guess what else happens? God alone gets the glory. Look at verse 22, it says. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah. Not the angel, the Lord saved Hezekiah. Not their prayers, the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all the others, and guided them on every side and brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that, they were, that he was exalted in the sight of all nations after this. So the nations exalt Hezekiah, but Hezekiah knows, nope, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. I want you to think about this for a second. Because here it is, it's Pentecost Sunday. And when Pentecost happened, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people, and you have to understand that was a unique and, and, and sort of a historical thing that happened there. Before Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected and ascended, the Holy Spirit only came upon mostly prophets, priests, and kings, and at a temporary measure. But as of Pentecost, because of the work of Christ that makes us right with God, at Pentecost, every believer is filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. What were they doing while they were waiting for that promise to come to pass? What were they doing? They were praying. They were praying for 10 days. They were seeking God, saying, Lord, we're waiting for you to bring the promise. We're waiting for you to be the deliverer. We're waiting for you for the power that we need to do what you've called us to do. This is so important. You see, as God brings this work of revival in our hearts, there's going to be resistance from the enemy. The enemy does not want us, does not want us to move forward. The enemy will do whatever he can do to keep us from moving forward. And you know what he does best? He lies. The enemy lies. This is what Satan does. His, his, his biggest weapons are his own lies, which is why we need to arm ourselves with God's truth, which is what we saw Hezekiah do in the beginning, trust the Lord, he's with us. But also, it's why we need to pray. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm, I'm reading from, uh, I'm reading uh, verse 10, verse 14, and verse 18. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We are going to experience resistance from the enemy. We do are called to resist him. And how do we do it? Prayer and the Word. 
This is Christianity 101, isn't it? This is the basic nuts and bolts. But how often do we not do this? How often do we neglect the truth of God's word and wonder why we're overwhelmed by all the lies in the world, all the lies of the enemy? How often do we kind of throw up a popcorn prayer here or a little one there, give thanks for our food and think that's sufficient and wonder why we're so weak, wonder why we don't see God overcome? Listen, don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we earn something from God through our prayers or through our Bible reading. It's not about earning, but it is about accessing. It's about accessing the grace that God has for us. This is what it means to resist. This is why this is part of revival. So we've seen so far that resistance means establishing the exclusive worship of God. Resistance means understanding uh, our, um, uh, understanding how our enemy works so that we can stand against him. But also, and we're going to see this in the last part of Hezekiah's life, the last things that the Chronicles says about him, is that resistance means that we recognize our dependence upon God, that we are utterly and always dependent upon God. This is a really important thing for us to get through our heads. In verse 24, it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. Now, the chronicler doesn't talk about the sign, but we know from other parts of Scripture, the sign was God actually had the sun stand still, or at least the shadow move backwards. I mean, how God did that, who knows? But the bottom line is, the chronicler seems to, to, to think that that detail, which is a shocking detail, doesn't need to be in here. That instead, what we just need to see is that God gave him a sign. But it says this in verse 25, But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now, he's really summing up a much longer story, probably assuming that his readers, the chronicles, assuming that his readers knew the story. But the point that I think he wants to bring to our, to our attention and to the reader's attention is not just Hezekiah's pride. That's, that's part of it. But how that pride showed itself. Because here's what we see happening. Hezekiah is devaluing God's favor in his life. He's seeing it as less important than it actually is. Now, we would say in a New Testament sense, instead of favor, we would say Grace. That God gives us his unmerited favor. God gives us his divine enabling. It's God who initiated a relationship with us. It's God who initiates a walk of righteousness with us. It's God who empowers us to actually walk in a good relationship with him. All of this is of grace. Every good thing in our life is of grace. And what happens is when we start doing well, we can start thinking it's not grace, it's me. We can devalue the grace of God. Or even if we don't think it's me, we think, well, yeah, okay, I haven't done it. It's God who's done it, but it's what God does. He should do it, as if somehow maybe we deserve it. But when we see ourselves as we are, as those left to ourselves would thumb our nose at God, would try to make a false God to replace Him, would try to ignore God and His reign in our life, His right to rule in our life, if we were left to ourselves, we would rebel against God, but God intervenes in our life because of grace. And grace alone. And in his intervention, we need to value that, not devalue that. See, I think we forget, we, we can easily think that we have 
We bring more to the table than we do. It's God who actually provides the table, uh, brings everything to the table, and then brings us to the table and says, eat. (laughs) It's God who does that. Now, Hezekiah, unfortunately, divided the grace of God. So what happens? It says in verse 27 to 30, we see the author just kind of talking about how blessed his life was. Hezekiah was, had very great riches and honor. He made himself treasures for silver, for gold, for precious stones, so on and so forth. He had storehouses full of grain. Verse 29, he provided cities for himself and possessions um, uh, in abundance. For God had given him very much property. And then it gives us this great little historical thing. The same Hezekiah had stopped the water outlet in Upper Gion and brought uh, the water by the tunnel on the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his ways. Now, this is an important thing to see for a couple of reasons. One, historically, you can go to Jerusalem now and you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. You can actually walk through it. It's a cool thing if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem. And so this is a good thing to know. This thing actually exists. This, this story is not just a metaphor for something. It's not mythology. It's actual history. But also it's important for us to see that even though the author is saying, hey, God blessed him with all these good things, these good things, in a sense, could have been a stumbling block to him. And I, I want to be honest with you. Sometimes I complain to God. I was talking to the brothers today about this. Sometimes I complain to God about what I don't have. Why can't I have this? And how come so-and-so has that and I can't have that? I, I'm, in, I'm ashamed to think about how, not just materialistic I am, but how greedy I can be and how um, self-entitled I can be. It's, it, it's, it's shockingly bad. And I, and I really do believe that, that even though God has really blessed me uh, with more than I deserve, I really believe that God hasn't given me more than I have because it probably would be a stumbling block to me. Do you ever fantasize about what it would be like to win the lottery? Now, I don't play the lottery because I think it's bad stewardship, but I used to pray, God, could you have my dad win the lottery? And then the money would come to me. I used to think about stuff like this. And I wonder why that hasn't happened. And I believe one of the reasons it hasn't happened is because oftentimes riches can be a stumbling block for us. It can be a difficult thing for us to have. Hezekiah's success could have been a stumbling block because what happens when we start doing well, whether it's materially or spiritually, we can start thinking that's us. When really it's always the grace of God that we're dependent upon. In fact, what happens in verse 31? It says, however, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew himself in order to test Hezekiah that he might know all that was in his heart. Now, this is interesting. Whenever the Bible says that God's testing someone to know what's in their heart, uh, don't, don't forget, God already knows what's in all of our hearts. This is more of so that God might make public what's known in Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's heart or the person's heart that he's wanting to expose. In a sense, it's that God might show all that's in his heart. It's good for us when God shows us what's actually in our hearts because, again, it shows us how dependent we are on him. In fact, what Hezekiah did was he showed off all the treasures in the house of God to the Babylonians who eventually came back and took it. Why? Because he overvalued man's approval. This is what we do. We try to put our best foot forward so we look good in front of people. We, we, we think maybe we're doing better than we actually are. We forget how utterly dependent we are on God's grace. This is what we do because of our natural human nature. This is what we do because of our flesh. This is where resistance comes in. We have to resist our flesh. 
See, the Bible is really clear that our flesh cannot do anything that's pleasing to God. Our natural human nature, it cannot be pleasing to God, which is why we need a new nature, which is why we need to be born again, like Jesus said. The good news is this. Even though our flesh can't please God, our faith can. Listen to this. I'll close with this. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. You can read about this in, I'm quoting Hebrews 11, but you can read about this in Genesis 5. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely Seek Him. You see, listen, God wants us to know Him. The creator of the universe doesn't want us just to know stuff about Him. He wants to bring us into His family. He adopts us into His family through faith in Jesus. When we put our faith in what Jesus has done for us, we're brought into God's family. That adoption becomes a reality. And when we walk by that faith and say, God, I want to know you. I want to draw near to you. I believe you will reward me with yourself or more knowledge of yourself as I draw near to you in Jesus. God is pleased with that. He's pleased with that kind of dependence that says, God, I want to seek after you because I need you more than anything else. God is pleased with that. This is why we have to resist the flesh. And recognize, God, we need you for everything. Even to know you, even to be right with you, we need you for everything. Even to grow, even to make you known to other people, we need you. And by faith, we're going to pursue you. Now, this section with Hezekiah ends with a, a, a positive epitaph. Because Hezekiah was a good king. But listen, Hezekiah is not the good king. That's Jesus. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And where Hezekiah may have failed to always worship God exclusively, Jesus never did. And where Hezekiah may have been intimidated or failed to, 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 um, to, to stand rightly before the enemies of God, Jesus never did. And where Hezekiah may not have always depended upon the Father, Jesus always did. This is why our faith isn't in Hezekiah. As great of an example as he was, he's not the example we follow. Our faith is in Jesus. Because where we fall short, Jesus succeeds. Where we haven't exclusively worshipped Jesus the way we should, his death covers that. And his spirit makes us able to do that, changes us. It's him and what he does that makes us right. On this Pentecost Sunday, I really want to encourage you to pray for revival. Pray that God would bring a fresh work in your heart that you would desire to refocus on Him, be reunified with His people, and resist all the conflict that is trying to bring you away from Him. That you would do that by the power of His, of, of his Holy Spirit and for His glory. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for uh, your words. And I pray you'd help us to live this out by the power of your spirit. Bring revival to us, Lord, please. We do recognize our flesh that's weak and wants to exalt ourselves. 
Would you recognize the enemy who lies to us and wants to keep us from keeping our focus on you? And would you recognize, Lord, that the world's never going to think that we're cool when we say you and you alone are worthy to be exclusively worshipped? We recognize these things, Lord, and we submit ourselves afresh to you and say, revive us again. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys.